Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business better? Welcome to the Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. Sponsored by Apple Capital Group. At the core of every successful business, you'll find people making a difference. And with each episode of the Core Business Show, we talk with those people, examine those ideas, and explore the strategies that make them special. Now, the host of the Core Business Show, Tim Jacquet. Good morning. Welcome to another edition of the Core Business Show. I'm Tim Jacquet, your host. Today we're going to continue our series, uh, The Power of uh, Closing the Cell. Uh, this is a pre-recording that was done, and we are rebroadcasting it. So anyway, uh, we're going to take a break for our sponsor work. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Core Business Show. You're listening to the Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. Apple Capital Group in Jacksonville, Florida, is a commercial lender that specializes in asset-based loans, equipment leasing and financing, invoice financing, commercial real estate loans, and asset-based financing in the U.S. and Canada. Apple Capital Group is a direct lender that lends on their private equity investment portfolio. 90% of most loans are decided within two hours, and vendor funding within 24 hours after documents are completed with a one-page application. No slow no's, just a quick decision and a fast yes. To get more information about lending from Apple Capital Group, call 866-611-7457. That's 866-611-7457 to speak with one of our loan specialists. Or visit us right now at applecapitalgroup.com. Welcome back to The Core. Once again, here's Tim Jacquet. Take a deep breath now and get ready to do some exercises with your voice. Being a sales professional means knowing how you sound as well as knowing what to say. Zig Ziglar is going to show you how voice inflection can make or break a sale. You'll also learn that all-important distinction between price and cost. Probably the most neglected area in the world of sales training has to do with the use of your voice. I'm now going to make a very strong statement. In my judgment, the most important thing you can do to dramatically improve your closing percentages and to make more sales is to deliberately train your voice. Learn how to use voice inflections. Because most people simply do not properly approach that. A lot of people learn the other things, but for whatever reason, they learn how to use their voice by accident. Strong statement to make now. If you do not have your own cassette player recorder, you, my friend, are not in the world of selling yet. 
Or at least you're not deadly serious about becoming as much as you can become. You absolutely must get a good cassette recorder. You must record your presentation. It would be ideal if it could be in front of a live prospect. If that cannot be handled, then you put it in a simulated, in a classroom situation, the full presentation. Give it everything you got. Do it as you normally would do. Then you need to do two things. You need to listen back and analyze, and then you need to script your presentation. You need to do the same thing with the way you answer objections, the way you close sales. The whole bit needs to be recorded. You're going to discover some interesting some pleasing, and some information that you won't be glad to get, except for the fact that it will help you to become infinitely more professional. You're going to discover, first of all, that the chances are about nine to one that you talk too much. That's right. The second thing you're going to discover is that particularly toward the end of the presentation, you have a tendency to get into much of a monotone. And the third thing you're going to discover is that you deal in a lot of areas that have nothing whatever to do with the sale itself. Let me tell you what's going to happen. When you put the words to script, they're going to remind you of some things that you have forgotten. You're going to then write those things down, those points, those examples, those ideas. And when you write down what you've been using, Combined with what you had forgotten, some beautiful new ideas are going to be generated from it. You're going to have a surge in the growth of your self-image. You're going to realize that you're much further down the path as a professional than you realize that you were. All right, now, I mentioned the fact that you've now gotten a great deal of information. You now need to start training your voice so that you can make it more effective. You do that, first of all, as you listen to that presentation, you ask yourself a question. If I were calling on me with that presentation I just made, would I be convinced? Would I buy from me? That's a very important thing. Then we need to look at how we change the inflection of the voice to make those words more effective. You can change meaning with voice inflection. Let me, let me give you one sentence with eight words in it to show you what I'm talking about. The sentence has eight different meanings depending on the way your voice is used. The sentence is, I did not say he beat his wife. Now, when I make the statement like that, that simply is a statement of fact. And that's all it is, a statement of fact. That's the first meaning. Now, the second meaning you can give it with voice inflection is, I did not say he beat his wife. The statement was made, but it's by somebody else. It wasn't me. The third statement can be simply a vehement denial. I did not say he beat his wife. The fourth statement can be, I did not say he beat his wife. I implied it, no question about that, but I sure didn't say it. Number five, I did not say he beat his wife. Is that fellow over there? He's the one who did it. The sixth statement, I did not say he beat his wife, slapped her around a little bit, but he sure didn't beat her. The next one, I did not say he beat his 
wife. He's beating that other fellow's wife. That's what he was doing. And finally, the eighth one, I did not say he beat his wife. That is his little sister you saw him slapping around. <laughs> Now, what's that got to do with selling? I believe it has everything in the world to do with selling. All I'm saying is that with voice inflection, you can give it an entirely different perspective and an entirely different meaning. You can tell your child to do something or you can ask a prospect to do something and it can either be in love or hate using the same words. But the tone the inflection of your voice is what makes the difference. And so as we look at the voice inflection close, you learn to do the things I'm talking about. First, by taking that one sentence, I did not say he beat his wife. Or you can take the next sentence, I did not say he stole the money. And you need to use those sentences into a recorder until a stranger can listen to them and tell you what those words are saying. Now, you'll have to practice that a number of different times, and you'll have to listen carefully and make it come back. And when you have been done that successfully, now re-record your presentation. With the new voice inflection and the new information, you will discover that in a matter of a month, you can dramatically increase the impact of that presentation. Then as you listen to this recording, you will want to play these things over and over and you'll need to back it up and then spread it forward and back it up and then let it go forward to hear this particular thing a number of times from here on in. How many of you have prospects who occasionally say to you that your price is a little out of line? Can I see your hands? I know of very few salespeople who do not encounter that objection. Now, some of them bring it up in one way, some in another. One guy will be dogmatic, that price is ridiculous. You might have an old boy down home kind of a philosopher who will kind of say, well, you folks kind of proud of that stuff yourself, ain't you? Another one might be a little timid or a little hesitant, you know, and then say, well, it seems to me that uh, that price is a little high. Now, they're all talking about price, but you handle them in a different way. The prospector says, that price is ridiculous. You simply lower your voice and repeat almost verbatim what they said. The price is ridiculous? Now, that sounds so simple. But you'll need to practice it on your recorder a number of times. What you have done psychologically is you now have moved the objection back over to his side of the table. Now, he's got to justify his statement instead of you defending the price. And there is a lot of difference. Now, in selling somebody, if you can make that customer start thinking... See, if you are selling a legitimate product at a legitimate price and it is in their best interest to buy, then you're making them think along those identical lines. Yes, voice inflection can play a tremendous role in selling. It means that you're selling on the offense instead of the defense. Now, suppose that the uh, 
prospect uh, has simply said to you, it uh, seems to me that the price is a little out of line. Now, please understand one thing. There are a lot of prospects who, for whatever reason, will automatically say the price is too high. Makes no difference what it is. They think that puts them in a better position to negotiate a better price or to get a better deal in some way, form, or fashion from you. And so they're automatically going to say something about the price being a little too high. What you need to do is find out if price really is the problem or is there another issue. My friend John Hammond has successfully handled literally thousands of objections of this nature. And what he does is very simple. He looks at the prospect and says, if there were a way I could show you that the price is more than fair and the product is worth every dime we're asking, would you go ahead and take advantage of our offer today? Now, what you're going to do is find out, is price the objection or is there something else? This forces the prospect to make a commitment based on price when his real objection might be color, style, neighborhood, or something else you could and should even must identify. If price is too high, let me ask you a question, Mr. Prospect. Do you like the product? Notice again all the questions we're asking. Do you like the product? Well, yes, I like it, but it, it says that the price is high. Lower your voice. Look your prospect right in the eye. And I'll say this so many times throughout the series. Look the prospect in the eye. Then you lower your voice and look at him and say, wouldn't you agree, Mr. Prospect, that it is difficult to pay too much for something you really like? Now, that's a pretty good question. And if you're selling a low-ticket item, cosmetics, brushes, necktie, wallet, items, you know, that are not a significant purchase in itself, a single item, a lot of times that one question is enough. But if you're selling a lifetime insurance program, or if you're selling a fancy luxury automobile, or if you're selling a, a home at $200,000, you're going to have to come up with more than that. A lot of times they say, yeah, well, I see what you mean, but yeah, I think you can pay too much for something, even if you really do like it. I'd like to have a Cadillac, but I'm not going to give you $50,000 for one. But what you've done is significant because you have started that individual to thinking. Now, this brings us right back to something important. We call it the fear of loss close. Again, remember that the fear of loss is greater than the desire for gain. You need to establish in that prospect's mind the fact that he's safe in dealing with you, that he's not going to lose. And for him, a loss could either be money or it could be embarrassment, a loss of face. He's not going to lose by buying from you. But he will lose product benefits if he doesn't buy from you. So one effective way to do this is simply to say, Mr. Prospect, let me point out that you're going to be concerned about price only one time. That's when you buy. But you're going to be concerned with quality during the entire lifetime of the product. Then you lower your voice, look him right in the eye again and say, wouldn't you agree that it's better to invest a little more than you had planned instead of a little less 
than you should? That is a good question. Wouldn't you agree that it's better to invest a little more than you had planned instead of a little less than you should? You see, if you invest a little more than you had planned, all you're talking about is pennies. If you invest less than you should and the product will not do what you had wanted it to do, then you literally lose everything. A little more than you had planned instead of a little less than you should. My good friend, the late Dick Gardner, put it this way. Why settle for the get-by when in the long run the good costs less? That's a powerful statement. It's a profound statement. Why settle for the get-by when in the long run the good costs less? That leads us into the cost close. Prospect still said it costs too much. Then you simply ask, Mr. Prospect, if you could convince yourself that the price is more than fair, would you have any objection to going ahead with a yes decision today? Then the next question. Are you really concerned about price or is it cost you're concerned? Is it price or is it cost? Now, in the world of selling, what we want to do is to eliminate as many areas of doubt. Remember we said earlier, they don't buy based on what they hear. They don't buy based on what they see. They don't buy based on what you show them or what you say them. They buy based on all of those that they can believe. Is it price or cost you're going to be concerned about? And in most cases, your prospect will say to you, well, what do you mean? What is the difference between price and cost? And then here's the example I use. Again, you need to translate. I will say this, I guess, 50 times throughout this entire series. You need to translate so that it fits your sales situation. I'm going to use an example because, number one, it happened to me. Number two, it beautifully and perfectly demonstrates exactly what I'm talking about. 1971, we went down to buy my son, who at that time was six years old, a bicycle. Now, in 1971, we went, first of all, to the Swin Bicycle Shop, and uh, the bicycle we looked at was $64.95. Well, in 1971, you just don't spend 65 bucks to buy a six-year-old a bicycle. He's just going to tear it up anyhow. So we, as prudent parents, went down to the discount store and found a really neat little bicycle for $34.95. Now, the price of one was $64.95. The price of the other was $34.95. We were excited about that $34.95 price. We bought it. Six weeks later, we went into the same store to get new handlebars for it. Now, because it was in warranty, they gave them to us. It didn't cost us anything. About a month later, though, we went back in to get more new handlebars, and now the warranty is no longer in effect, and so we ended up investing $4.50 for those new handlebars. About two months later, the entire sprocket apparatus came completely unglued. So we went down, and when we got through, the bill was $15 and change. I don't know exactly how much. About a month later, the barons and one of the wheels went kaput. We went down, and they were going to cost three, four, five, six. I don't know how many dollars, because at that point, we threw in the towel. We said, enough is enough is enough. 
At that point, you see, we had invested $54.45 in that bicycle. We then went down uh, to the Swin bicycle shop and invested $64.95 in the Swin bicycle. Now, my son literally rode that bicycle until he got to be too big to ride it. For 10 years, he was, uh, when he was 16 years old, he was still playing riding it. He was too big by then to actually ride it. But in 10 years' time, we did not invest another dime in that bicycle with the exception of two tires, and that had nothing to do with the quality of the bicycle. So let's look at what we're talking about. The price of this one was $34.95, the least expensive bicycle. We used that bicycle not counting the downtime. My son rode it for six months. That means the cost of that bicycle was $9 a month. That was the cost. The Swim bicycle, he rode it and used it for 10 years. Total price, 65 bucks. That means that my son, uh, that we had, ridden that bicycle for $6.50 a year. That was the cost of it. Mr. Prospect, one price to $34.95, but cost $9 a month. The other one was priced at $64.95, but it only cost $6.50 a year. Let me ask you again, Mr. Prospect, is it price you're concerned about or is it cost? In the cost clothes, then you simply lower your voice, you look them in the eye, and you say, there are many people, Mr. Prospect, who can beat us on price, but nobody beats us on cost. Since price is a one-time thing and cost is a lifetime thing, if I'm reading you right, I'm betting that you're mostly interested in cost, aren't you? We can have this installed by next Friday, or if there's an emergency, we can have it in by Tuesday. Which would you prefer? I believe when you educate, you see, that's what that clothes beautifully does. It educates them to a fact. It educates them to the possibilities that your product has to offer. You see, I believe we as salespeople have a strong moral obligation. If we sell a good product at a fair price, if we honestly feel that it does help the prospect, I believe we have a moral responsibility to learn as much as we can about making the sale so that we can help them get what they want. That way we also obviously get what we want. Incidentally... Dealing with the price objection again, you've got to remember that a lot of people just automatically say the price is too high. One other thing you can do, I'm glad you're concerned about price, Mr. Prospect, because that's one of our most attractive advantages. Would you agree then, as a practical matter, a product is worth what it can do for you and not what you have to pay for it? That's what a product is worth. A glass of water could be worth a million dollars if you were three miles out in the desert and about to die and a glass of water was the energy you needed to get back in. The price of the glass of water, if somebody came along selling water and said it's $10 a glass, I guarantee you wouldn't haggle over the price. If you had the money, you 
would buy the water. Mr. Prospect, our company had to make a choice between building our product as cheaply as possible and selling it as a get-by product or building quality into the product for service, durability, and your long-lasting enjoyment. In short, for long-range value and benefit. Most people, Mr. Prospect, and I'll bet that includes you, clearly understand that good things are not cheap, and cheap things are seldom good. There's so many things that can be said, but people do forget about the price. They never, though, forget about poor quality and poor service. But what I'm saying is that people do forget price. They do not forget the quality of the merchandise, unless it's lousy. Then they'll remember that forever and ever. And then the next uh, clothes that I want to use is what I call the quality clothes. The prospect says, well, all of that sounds good, but yeah, the price is still too high. Now, this is one you can use as a finale. This is one you use in a department store. Or if you're selling a low-ticket item, this might be the only clothes that you need. If it is a high-ticket item you're selling, then you don't use this one in the beginning. You use it a little later on. The prospect says the price is still too high. You lower your voice. You look at your prospect and you say, Well, you know, Mr. Prospect, many years ago our company made a basic decision. We decided that it would be easier to explain price one time than it would be to apologize for quality forever. And I'll bet you're glad we made that decision, aren't you? Now, you can use that for low-ticket items or high-ticket items. If it's a high-ticket item, you would not use it initially. Then occasionally you'll have a prospect, and we call this the answer for everything close. Occasionally you'll have a prospect who'll say, well, I must commend you. Doesn't make any difference what I bring up. You've got an answer for it. Or they might say, well, you've certainly done your homework. Uh, doesn't make any difference what I say. You know exactly what to say, or you come back at me. You get me every time. But if you want to make the sale, then you need to lower your voice, look them right in the eye and say, well, you know, Mr. Prospect, I really appreciate that comment, and I'm going to take it as a compliment. But realistically, there are many things I don't have the answer to. That's one of the reasons I'm so excited about selling the product, which is the answer to your problem. And that's what you really want, isn't it? Nodding your head as you do. I've said a hundred times through the series, the right words, the right voice inflection, the right intent will substantially improve your professionalism and the results that you get in the world of selling. Let's step back a minute to consider something really fundamental, belief. You know, selling is nothing less than a transference of feeling. And remember, buyers are believers first. Now, it's hard to be enthusiastic and convincing if you yourself haven't mentally and emotionally purchased your own product or service. Here's a story about a salesman who turned himself around in one day. 
with Zig's help. Zig made him a believer. The critical step in building a sales career is the step called honesty. Now, when I talk about honesty, I'm not talking about paying your bills. I mean, if you don't pay your bills, your credit is shot. If you write people hot checks, then uh, they're not going to accept them the next time, and the bank charges you several bucks for bouncing on them. And you write a bad check in Kansas City today, and we know about it in Dallas and Miami and Portland, Oregon, and everywhere else tomorrow. Actually, paying your bills and writing good checks has nothing to do with being honest. That simply is being practical. It enables you to go through life lots easier and lots smoother and a lot better. But when I talk about the honesty factor in the world of selling, I'm going to begin with a story. Back in 1963 in Columbia, South Carolina, I was in the cookware business. I was the number one salesman in America for the Salad Master Corporation. We had some 3,000 dealers and lots more salespeople than that scattered all over the country. That particular year, I was just hotter than a $2 pistol. You know, you, you get on a roll sometimes, and you keep rolling and rolling and rolling, and for 12 solid months there, I was on a roll. Now, if you know anything about the cookware business, what happens in this particular phase of it, we have a demonstration. The hostess invites a bunch of couples out. We cook them a meal, demonstrate the product, go out and see them the next day. Now, 95% of the prospects would always carefully explain to the hostess, well, I'll be glad to come. So you can win your hostess prize, but I'm going to tell you right now, in advance, I am not in the market for any high-priced set of cookware. And I just want you to know up front that that's the way it is. How many of you have ever been to a cookware demonstration and carefully explained that to the uh, hostess, all right? Now, how many of you who carefully explained all that to the hostess before you got there, after you got there, decided you might as well go ahead and buy it anyhow? Can I see your hands, please, okay? Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That year, we were selling lots of cookware. Had a friend in the same town selling the same product, and he, as the saying goes, was literally starving to death. I mean, he just couldn't cut the mustard, as we'd say, and he was having trouble making ends meet. I was over at his house one uh, afternoon. We were having a cup of coffee, and we were uh, going our individual ways for the evening. He was simply in the same business. We had no affiliation other than our friendship. And as we sat there talking, and he was moaning and groaning and griping and complaining and singing the blues, I listened to it for quite a few minutes, and then I looked at him, and I said, Well, Bill, I know exactly what your problem is. He said, Well, man, why don't you tell me quick, because I need to start selling somebody something now. And I said, Well, the problem is very simple, Bill. You're trying to sell a product that you don't believe in. Well, old Bill Bach came unglued. He said, Zig, that's crazy. Man alive, that simply is not so. We got the best set of cookware on the American market. I love our products. I believe in it. I said, now, come on, Bill. You peddle that baloney to somebody else, my friend. I happen to know you don't believe in it. Oh, Zig, he said, that's crazy. Of course I believe in it. As a matter of fact, he said, I left the company I had been with for four years as a manager to come with this company as a salesman, and the prime reason I did was because I am so completely sold on the product. I said, now, come on, Bill. I said, you paid a lot to other people. This is old Zig. I'm your buddy. I know you, and I know you don't believe in the product, and I know that I know that you don't believe in it. And with that, I nodded toward the stove. Oh, he said, you mean the fact that I'm cooking in a competitive set of cookware? 
I said, you got the message, Bill, loud and clear. Oh, he said, Dick, Dick, don't pay any attention to that. He said, man, that's got nothing to do with me believing our product. He said, I'm going to get us any cookware. But he said, you know yourself, we have had all kinds of trouble. He said, as you know, I wrecked my car, and there's a period of nearly two months that I didn't have dependable transportation. Had to ride cabs or borrow a car or catch a bus. And he said, Dick, you just can't sell unless you have dependable transportation. He said, man, and then the wreck itself was expensive. It just flat knocked me for a loop. And he said, you know, perfectly good and well, my wife's been in the hospital. And he said, she was there a couple of weeks and said, in addition to being worried to death, there I'm back and forth having to get somebody to look after the boys and, and me trying to sell all at the same time. He said, man, you just can't do it. He said, that knocked me for another loop. And he said, now it looks like you're going to have to put the boys in the hospital and get their tonsils out. And he said, Zig, we don't even have an insurance. So, man, he said, it's been tough. I said, Bill, let me ask you a question. He said, okay. I said, how long have you been with this company? He said, uh, five years. The critical step in building a sales career is the step. I said, what was your excuse last year? And the year before that? 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 I said, Bill, let me tell you precisely what happens when you're down in the short rows, as we say down home, and you're closing the tough ones. And you've got to understand that to survive in the world of selling, you've got to get the close ones. Because if you don't make the close sales, you're not going to sell enough of the wrap-ups, that, uh, as we say in the world of selling. You're just not going to get enough of those. You've got to win the close ones. And I can tell you exactly what's taking place when you're on a tough sales call. I can even tell you what the prospect is saying on so many of them. He said, okay, what is it? I said, you get down to the short rows, you start to close, you ask the obligating question, the prospect looks at you and says, oh, I don't know, Bill. Daggone it all, we sure need a good set of pots. I don't know how my wife cooks in that stuff. She's got it. But, Bill, it just don't hardly seem like now's the right time. said, things just haven't gone well at all. said, wasn't too long ago, I wrecked my car. said, for a couple of months there, I had to depend on borrowed transportation to get around or had to use a taxi cab or ride a bus. And he said, you know, you just can't operate like that. And he said, in addition to the car wreck costing a lot of money, my business was down during that period of time. I said, man, it's tough. And he said, on top of that, he said, you know, I had another problem. He said, my wife's been in the hospital a couple of weeks. And in addition to being worried to death about her, and I couldn't have work and concentrate on what I was doing, I had to go back and forth trying to get somebody to look after the boys. And, uh, and you know, that's never satisfactory. And said, now it looks like we're going to have to put the boys in the hospital to get the tonsils out. We don't even have an insurance. Now, I said, Bill, you and I both know nobody's going to come up with exactly the same excuses that you've been given for the last five years, but I'll guarantee you they will be coming up with a lot of the same ones you've been giving yourself over this five-year span. Oh, I know, Bill, I know you're a professional, I know you're well-trained, and I know while the prospect is giving you all those negatives, you're sitting there giving yourself a little lecture saying, now, think positive, Bill, think positive, Bill, think positive, Bill. But deep down inside, there's that quiet little voice that keeps saying, 
Yeah, I know what you mean. That's the very reason I don't have a set of the stuff myself. Now, I said, Bill, I'm going to say something, and if you don't ever hear me say another word, hear me when I say this, because here's a sales lesson you don't ever want to forget. Selling is not a thing in the world, but a transference of feeling. If I can make you feel about my product like I feel about my product, my friend, you are going to buy my product. If I can make you feel about my goods and services like I feel about my goods and services, you are going to buy my goods and services if there is any way in the world that you can get my product or my goods and services. Let me ask you, how many of you in this live audience this evening are in the real estate business? Can I see your hands? How many of you have ever gone out and got that choice listing? I mean, when you walked in and got that list and you knew and you knew that you knew that this one wouldn't last the day out. Exact location, price right, marketable to the nth degree. You just had that feeling about it. And when you got back to the office, you spread the word, oh, I just listed one that's going to go before the day is over. Let me tell you where it is. Let me tell you about it. And the word spread, and sure enough, before the day was over, certainly before the week was over, it was gone. Why? Because selling is a transference of feeling, and you've transferred that feeling to other people, and it's catching, especially by the prospects. Not too long ago, I was speaking for a major life insurance company, and the executive vice president of the company explained to me that he could take 100 of his salesmen, in this case, ladies, he could take 100 of his salesmen who had been with him at least a year and predict within five percentage points of what they were going to sell the next year without checking what they had sold the first year or the last year there was a company, without looking at a single record. He said, I can tell you within five percentage points what the 100 will sell as a group. He said, all I got to do is look at how much life insurance they carry on their own life. And when you've gotten to figure on how much they carry on their own life, he said, I can calculate how much they're going to be able to persuade other people to buy. You see, selling is a transference of feeling, and if you truly believe in what you're selling, not only will you sell more now, but you will sell it in such a way that you will be building a sales career. And that's really what this is all about. How many of you have seen a brand-new salesman or a brand-new sales lady come into your organization? They don't know the first thing about bear trap closers. When you talk to them about the psychology of persuasion, they get a glazed-over look in their eyes. They don't know anything about the technique and the procedure about all of these other things. But, oh, brother, they believe this is the greatest product on the face of this earth, and they believe that you ought to have some of it. And they don't listen to that story about the territory or the area being sold out. They just believe that this is great, and and you ought to have it, and you ought to get it. Now, how many of you have seen brand-new people come in and sell rings around some of the old pros around the office? It happens all the time. Selling is, in fact, a transference of feeling. Willa Dorsey, the great spiritual singer, expresses it, I think, in the most beautiful and meaningful way I have ever heard in my life when she says, Brother, if you're going to be convincing you got to be convinced. Well, to bring the story to a close, I sold Bill a set of the cookware. 
Now, don't misunderstand. He wrote his own order. But I was so strong, I just insisted, Bill, if you have to mortgage your furniture in order to do this, by all means, you ought to go ahead and get that set of cookware. He said, Jig, do you feel that strongly about it? I said, I've never felt as strongly about anything in my life as this particular thing. Bill bought that set of cookware that day, and that week he sold enough additional cookware to pay for his own set. You see, when he'd get down to those short rows, when he'd start closing the sale, and the prospect would start giving him the argument, you know, that they can't afford it and this sort of thing, old Bill understood that he had sacrificed himself. He understood the value. He knew that his conviction was there, that his belief was deep, and therefore he was able to persuade that other person to take action. You see, I believe honesty basically is your total conviction and commitment that what you're selling offers certain advantages and distinct advantages over a comparable or comparable product that anybody else might be selling. If you're selling Fords and driving Chevrolets, you're missing some sales because of it. Now, I don't think necessarily if you're selling 747s that you've got to buy one. But I do believe in most cases that you got to buy it in order to sell it. And that certainly comes within reason. If you're selling uh, locomotives or high-priced computers, that would not fit in the category. But I'm talking about items which you use in your everyday life. Until and unless you truly feel that nobody sells a better product value, you're really not completely honest and your performance will not be at the level you're capable of attaining. In other words, you're working on three cylinders. The late Charles Roth put it this way. Many people feel that if they utter three magic words in the world, in the business world, that they can do what they want to. He says that if people say, well, business is business, but then they can go ahead and lie and cheat and exaggerate and all of those good things. But that's the way you might make an immediate sale, but terminate any possibility of building a sales career. When you're honest, when you're dealing from the top of the deck, your chances of building that career are greatly enhanced. Rob points out that a calm, confident, positive, reassuring salesperson working from a base of honesty and integrity is the most effective tool to calm the fears of the prospect and to get the sale. No, honesty is not just a, a moral issue. It is very practical in the world of selling. Actually, what I've been describing to you is what I call the believer's clothes. Because if your belief is strong, then you're going to be able to sell more. In a previous series of recordings, I told this story about Bill. We had a young uh, salesman seated in the audience, and he was selling uh, fire detection equipment for the home. And he realized that he apparently did not believe himself because he did not have the equipment in his own home. He was out selling everybody else sell to protect their families, and he was not protecting his own. Now, you see, deep down, if we are sound, moral individuals, that's going to be gnawing at our conscience. Well, the young man decided to go ahead and install the equipment he was selling in his own home. And you know the rest of the story, because before the month was over, he had sold enough additional systems to completely pay for his own. The world of selling is an exciting world. Believers, for example, can't understand how a prospect can say no. And if they don't understand how a prospect can say no, a lot of times they don't get the answer of no. 
How many of you ever listed a home and have a prospect say, well, I don't know why I'm listing it with you. Half a dozen people have already tried to get me to list this home with them, and I have not done it. How many have ever had a prospect say, I don't know why I'm buying for you. Others have tried, but for whatever reason, uh, I just didn't buy from them, but I buy from you. And what they're really saying is, I trust you. In this part of Zig Ziglar's Secrets of Closing the Sale, you'll hear the crucial difference between sympathy and empathy and how this difference can increase your sales percentages. Some closes to listen for here are Get Them Smiling and the Empathy Close. Yes, the heart of your sales career starts with a critical step called honesty. The second area that we get into is this thing called ego. Dr. H.M. Greenberg, a New Jersey psychologist, did an analysis of 186,000 people over a period of several years. And he discovered that one individual out of five walking down uh, Main Street, USA, that one out of five could be trained to become a successful salesperson. But he discovered that those who are going to go to the top, who are going to be the most successful in the world of selling, these are the ones who have a considerable ego. And it's a special ego which thrives on success. It's an ego that says that when they go out in the world of selling and they get the appointment, they're happy about that because the prospect has accepted them. If the prospect refuses the appointment, their, uh, their dampers get a little bit down because now they feel that they have been rejected. Dr. Greenberg says you absolutely must have that ego need for acceptance and satisfaction. And every time a prospect says yes, the prospect is satisfying that ego need. He also says this can uh, present a potentially very hazardous or dangerous situation because there are some salespeople who will go to any lengths to get a yes, to gain that acceptance, and so they exaggerate, they oversell, they don't stick as closely to the truth as they need to. With the net result, they have to change areas and they have to change territories far too often, and the net result is they never really or anything like as successful as they otherwise would be. Dr. Greenberg says to go with that ego, you've got to have this thing called empathy. Now there's a vast difference between empathy and sympathy, and so I want to deal with that because if you add empathy to the ego, now you've got the ideal sales individual who's going to sell a great deal more merchandise. Sympathy simply means that you feel as the other person feels. Empathy means you understand how they feel. You are sensitive to the feedback from them, but you do not feel as they feel. And therefore, you can back away from the problem and offer a solution. Simple example is if you're on an ocean-going ship, and you see a person at the rail who is seasick, if you have sympathy, you will join them at the rail. <laughs> if you have empathy, you will get them some cold water, a wet cloth to wipe their face, and some seasickness pills. You're not part of the problem. You don't have the problem. You offer a solution, and so you can back away with that. 
marriage counselors with sympathy will end up needing a marriage counselor. A psychiatrist with sympathy will end up needing a psychiatrist. Parents with sympathy, too much of it at any rate, will raise small, squalling young'uns, as we'd say down home. They will give the child everything they want, whether it's in the best interest of the child or whether it's good for the child or not. They simply cannot stand to hear the child cry, and they're browbeaten into giving the child everything they want at the drop of a hat. And you know what happens there. A sales manager with sympathy will end up broke, discouraged, and out of the business. Every salesperson in his or her organization will be borrowing money from them, making unreasonable demands on them, which that individual will meet, the, the person with the uh, sympathy, that is. Doctors and lawyers with sympathy are eventually going to get in trouble. You don't need sympathy, you need empathy. When I had my surgery, I'm delighted that my surgeon did not have sympathy. If he had, when he started to slit me open, you know, he would say, Oh, I bet this hurts. <laughs>
If you can gain his attention with a little light approach, it is an excellent way to get started. Now let's look at, with an example, the basic difference between uh, sympathy and empathy. Many years ago when I first started in the cookware business and we were putting on those demonstrations I mentioned a little earlier, we would feed the couples that night, make the appointments to see them the next day. Never will I forget, up in Lancaster County, South Carolina, out in the Buford community, I had a man and his wife to attend the demonstration. They had seven children. Now, on the demonstration, we demonstrate that cooking in our set of cookware would save money, it would save food value, and it would save time and work. Well, I went back the next day to see this farmer and his wife. They had seven children between the ages of two and 16. And I made the presentation, asked the obligating question, will remember his answer as long as I live. He literally held up his hand and said, Mr. Ziegler, he said, this ain't going to mean much to you. Now, let me stress, this was 35 years ago when this event took place. This ain't going to mean much to you. But he said, because uh, you said, I know you've got a bathroom in your house. But he said, me and my wife have been married over 20 years. And for over 20 years, I've been promising her every year that next year, honey, we're going to build a bathroom in our house. And he said, Mr. Ziegler, one year we'd have a new baby. Another year we'd have a bad crop. Another year we'd have to buy a new tractor. Another year, another baby. And it went on year after year. And for 20 years, it's always been, honey, next year we're going to get running water. We're going to have us a bathroom in our house. But he said, Mr. Ziegler, I want to tell you something. He said, I have got that money right here. And that's exactly the way he said it. And he pointed to the center pocket in his overalls. That's the money pocket. Got that money right here to build that bathroom. And he says, ain't you nor nobody else are going to get one dime of this money until I build that bathroom. Now, as I said to you in the first segment, on every interview, a sale is made. They either sell you that they can't or won't, or you sell them that they can or should. Now, sometimes uh, the prospect is the better salesperson. In this particular case, I was badly overmatched. I mean, I never had a chance. Now, let me explain that one of the reasons that I never had a chance was because I had sympathy. When I'd been a boy over in rural Mississippi, we had run in water, too. Now, I'm talking about the kind you got to run and get. <laughs> and when he made some reference to those cold, wet trips, even though it was August, I shivered three times. I knew exactly what he was talking about. There is nothing, I mean nothing, I would have done to have jeopardized that old boy's bathroom. Now, one of the first lessons that I've been taught by my sales manager and close friend, Bill Cranford, was that when you miss a sale, you want to miss it and leave the prospect in such a way that the next salesperson can gain even easier entrance into the prospect's mind than you did. You see, if you made the sale, you don't have a problem because they're going to justify why they bought. If you didn't make the sale, they're going to justify why they didn't buy. And so you need to be particularly careful when you leave the customer that you missed or terminate an interview that you have missed, that you especially leave them in a good frame of mind. Well, after I had uh, missed the sale in my own mind, 
I folded my tent and quietly stole away like a thief in the night after I had established and spent a few minutes building what I thought was a friendly relationship. As a matter of fact, he even invited me when I was back in the neighborhood to stop in and have a cup of coffee with him. Well, I left, I thought, as his friend, at least peacefully. A couple of days later, I bumped into his sister on the streets of the little town of Lancaster, South Carolina, and she crossed the street to see me and said, I want to know what in the world happened to you and my brother. I said, what do you mean you want to know what happened? Uh, I said, I missed the sale. She said, yeah, I know you missed the sale, and he is so mad at you. I think if he ever sees you again, he's going to whip you. I said, him mad at me? A nice fellow like me, what in the world is he mad at me about? She said, I'll tell you exactly why he's mad at you. He wanted to buy a set of them pots, and you wouldn't even sell them to him. <laughs> I said, well, I'll sure take care of that right now. I'll just scoot back out there. She said, it is too late. He said, he doesn't like you anymore, doesn't even trust you. But he would have bought had you insisted that day that he go ahead to do so. Uh, he definitely would have bought. Now, she had a vested interest because had he bought, she would have gotten an extra little premium as a result of it. Well, you know, I puzzled and I pondered on that thing for a long time. And I'm not about to tell you that all of a sudden, one day, like a bolt out of the blue, it hit me loud and clear, and I had a revelation, here is what happened. It could have been one of several things. First of all, it could have been that the prospect, having listened to me and having seen the demonstration uh, the night before, thought maybe I was lying. You see, I had proved that it would save money. I had proved that it would save work and time. I had proved that it saved food value. At least I had demonstrated that. And the old boy might have figured that, you know, if it really would do all of those things, I never would have bought his excuse that he just wasn't going to buy it at this time. Now, that could have been it. He could have thought I was lying to him. Or there could have been uh, something even more serious. It could have been that it would do all of those things, but when he offered me some resistance, that I, in my own mind, said, well, to heck with you, friend. I'm not going to get in a wrestling match with you. I'll go down the road, and I'll sell somebody who's lots easier to sell. I'm simply speculating, saying, that could have been it. In other words, he felt I was not concerned about his wife and his children. But in thinking about it over and over, I'm absolutely convinced that this is probably what happened. I heard everything the man said. And he said, I got the money right here, right now, to build that bathroom. As a matter of fact, the rascal actually pointed at the money. But he said, ain't you, and nobody else going to get one dime of it until after we build the bathroom. Now, that's what he said. But let me tell you what he was saying. He was saying, Mr. Ziegler, for over 20 years, I've had a problem been trying to get the money to build my family a bathroom. But I don't have that problem anymore. I got the money right here in my pocket. Problem is solved. Now, Mr. Ziegler, if you'll just look around, you can clearly see that I've got another problem. I've got seven children. They range in age from 2 to 16. See, I don't care how clever you are. You cannot hide seven children in a small house. You just can't do it. 
Now he said, I've got these seven children, and Mr. Ziegler, what I would like to do is feed them the best food possible, the most nutritional food available. I would like to feed them as inexpensive as I can because everything does cost. And he said, I would like to find something to help my wife. Bless her heart with seven children. And being a farm wife and having me on the farm, she literally is working herself to death. And Mr. Ziegler, if you've got something that would save her time and work, I'd be so grateful. That's what he was saying. But you see, I didn't have empathy. I had sympathy. I was wrapped up in the problem, not the solution. And ladies and gentlemen, if you don't hear me say anything else the rest of this evening, please understand that. You need to back away from the problem and let your creative imagination go to work and start coming up with solutions so that you can help them solve that problem. Now as we get into what I call the empathy close, it has to do with a good friend of mine, Jay Martin from Memphis, Tennessee. Jay's the president of an organization called National Safety Associates. They sell smoke and fire detectors uh, on a direct sales basis all over America. And Jay was telling me about a call he made one evening with one of his young salesmen. And he said, Zig, this young dealer was a pretty good salesman. Not exceptional, not outstanding, but solid. He made a good presentation. When he finished the presentation and asked the obligating question, he said the old boy, who probably didn't finish the second grade, reared back on the two hind legs of his chair, folded his arms, and said, Well, son, I know you've heard about my wreck. Well, the young dealer had not heard about the wreck, but that was fixing to be corrected pronto. <laughs> old boy said, Yes, and me and my wife was going down the highway here a couple of months ago, and this fella passed on the wrong side of the highway, hit us head on, tore our car all to pieces, put us both in the hospital. Said, I was in there about 10 days, and he said, you know, when, uh, when I came out, my ankle was a little bit stiff, and he said, since I work on peace goods, uh, I don't uh, get around quite as good as I did, and he said, my income's down a little bit, and said, that's your hurt. He said, my wife here was really laid up. She was in the hospital over six weeks. And the time she got back, they had phased her job out. Now she ain't working. And he said, you know, when you've been used to having two incomes and now you've only got one, man, he said, it really makes a difference in uh, your standard of living. And he said, not only that, but he said the hospital bill is over $20,000, both of it. He said, now I know the insurance company's going to pay it, but he said, they sure are driving us up the wall until they do. And he said, just a week or so ago, he said, my boy come home from the Navy and said, first night home is rounding a curve too fast. Went over an embankment down into a service station and tore up an oil company sign. It cost about $7,000. And he said, I know my insurance is going to cover my car. But he said, I don't know about that sign. And he said, man, if we have to pay for that sign, he said, we're just going to be up the proverbial creek. He said, I don't know what we're going to do. And he says, as if that ain't enough, he said, just last night, we checked my mother-in-law into the most expensive nursing home in this county. Now, the only other living relative she's got is a son, and he said, he ain't been heard from in several years, and ain't worth shooting if we could find him. He said, I know, I'm going to have to end up paying all that, too. Now, folks, if you've got sympathy, I'll tell you, you've got a problem. If you've got sympathy, you'd say to him, oh, that, that, that's terrible, and, and, and it's probably worse than that. You just don't want to make me feel bad. It's the reason you don't tell me the rest of the story. But let me ask you, won't the Red Cross help you out somewhere? Won't the government do something? How about your neighbors? Won't the church do something? Won't somebody help you? If you've got sympathy, 
That's exactly what you'd be saying. You'd be involved in this problem. According to J. Martin, this young dealer did not have sympathy, he had empathy. He backed completely away from the problem. He looked right at the man and asked him this question. In addition to those reasons, sir, would there be any other reason <laughs> why you could not go ahead and install this equipment in your home to protect your family? Do you folks in Kansas City know what a conniption is? <laughs> That's what that old boy had right there. He flat had a conniption. According to Jay, he slapped his leg and hollered out loud. He said, no, son, those are the only reasons that we can't go ahead and get that equipment. <laughs> Young man never hesitated. He was away from the problem. He's going to come up with a solution. He reaches into his sample case. They have what they call the physical action clothes, which I'll deal with at considerable length in the final segment of this recorded series, as I've done in the book. And uh, he, backed away. he reached down into his sample case. He took out one of the smoke detectors. He walked over to the wall held it up against it to show the prospect exactly how it would look. And as he did so, he said, Sir, as nearly as I can tell, you now owe nearly $30,000. And he said, 300 more just won't make any difference <laughs> at all. <laughs> But the statement that got the sale was the next one. He's set it up now. Remember, he's using empathy. He's not part of the problem. He backed away this time. He lowered his voice, as I talked about doing in the, the psychology of selling, where we talked about voice inflection. He lowered his voice, looked the man right now, and said, Sir, fire under any circumstances is devastating. But in your case, it would wipe you out. <laughs> now, please don't miss the other guy. He got the order. Incidentally, there's an additional lesson there. Most of his problems did not take place. First of all, the insurance company did cover the sign and the hospital bill. Uh, second, they discovered that uh, they had some insurance and some government programs that did take care of the nursing home, or a large portion of it. Third, they did find the son and did make a contribution. And fourth, the wife did go back to work. So uh, he had bought it on the 60-day cash plan and was able to pay it out as a net result. But don't miss the most important lesson of all, and that's this. He had given or had taken the reasons that the prospect was given as to why they could not buy and had used it as the reasons why he absolutely must buy. Now, was it legitimate? I believe it was totally legitimate myself because it is true that fire is devastating to anybody. But man, if you've got all those problems already on you, then fire really would wipe the old boy out. He made the sale for that reason. With empathy, you're emotionally detached from the problem so you can offer solutions. 
You move from your side of the table to the prospect side of the table. Realistically, that's where the sale is going to be made. And the chance of that happening is greatly increased because from his side of the table, you make his presentation or the presentation from his point of view. Thank you for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. For more information about equipment financing and asset-based loans, visit our website, applecapitalgroup.com. That's applecapitalgroup.com. Or call us at 866-611-7457. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And remember, you can always get to The Core via iTunes. You'll find all our previous episodes there. And thanks again for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.